Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed and your host for this week. For this year's special December episodes, Angela and I are going to be taking a little bit different approach and answering a listener request to take an episode and let you get to know more about our hosts. So in January, we're going to return back to our normal format, but we're just going to have some fun here in December. Angela is Niche's Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for PK-12. And she and I split the hosting duties of the podcast, which you probably already know. So let's all get to know her a little bit better. Welcome. Hello, Will. This is super fun. I'm excited about this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you're back on the guest side again. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to be. Well, we asked our normal questions. Uh, we interviewed you back, back in last summer, and I think it was episode 31, uh, back before you started at Niche. So in this first episode of the podcast... I, I made a little bit of a mistake, and so if you haven't listened to that one, it was a great episode, but I asked a little bit too many intro questions. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you now the third intro that I've since cut. Which is the worst excuse, no budget or no time? So I thought a lot about this one because I, I don't want to get into trouble <laughs> with people who are using these these excuses. But honestly, I think both are valid. You know, we know from our enrollment and marketing survey earlier this fall that budgets are pretty tight in a lot of areas. And that's that's definitely tough. But from my previous position working in a school, I also understand that even when you have a generous budget, it's hard to execute well when there are only so many hours in the day. Pre-K-12 school marketers keep getting things added to their plates, but nothing is usually taken away. And that's a legitimate challenge that needs to be addressed, usually at the very top of an institution. I also think that there's this issue where people in leadership positions in schools can end up being bogged down by meetings, and that makes it hard to find time for execution, which is also a really big challenge. There's this odd dynamic of being in a position of leadership but not having control over your calendar, and that is also something mm -hmm. that I think schools and, and other organizations, frankly, should probably take a look at to make sure that you know people who are asked to both strategize and do can do both. But all of that is to say that there are hacks for both. There are definitely some ways that you can manage time more effectively, ways that you can work around having a small budget. But I think ultimately, not having enough budget can really stifle a school's ability to market well. Because at the end of the day, things like CRM systems and paid advertising really matter now. So I, I think I would say that budget is probably more valid. Yeah. I, I, I think they're both excuses. They can both be excuses, though, too, because you do have a budget. You're just using it differently. That's true. Right? That's not true. often you have a zero dollar budget. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Yeah. I think it's just a matter similar with time. It's a matter of figuring out how to best allocate, you know, what, yeah. what, what you're and, and we know also from the survey that sometimes budget goes towards things like flyers and yeah. radio ads <laughs> and things that don't show a lot of ROI, but you're going through the motions because that's what you've always done or because mm -hmm. you have a board member or a head of school or principal who's asking you to do those things. So there are opportunities to work around both for sure. Yeah. We've done it for the last 20 years. We have to keep doing it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Angela, what's your personal mission statement? What's your why? This is a hard one, but it, it's it's pretty simple. So it's not directly tied necessarily to what I do for a living, but my personal mission statement is to try to get a little bit better at something every day. And mm -hmm. that is 
it, it applies across all aspects of my life. So it might be learning something new for my work or getting just a little bit faster on my running pace or helping my son solve a problem. I really just try to look at what can I do incrementally better today because I just I don't ever want to be in a place where I feel stagnant or like I'm just going through the motions. So by having this target of trying to do like I'm going to read this article or try to listen to this podcast or take a moment to stop and help my son with his homework, you know, I want to be a better parent, a better employee, a better colleague, a better spouse. And it can be hard to try to set these really big goals to do all of those things at once. So if I can make them a little bit more snackable and and try to do something just a little bit better every day, that feels achievable and it helps me to feel like I'm not just standing still. Yeah, a snack pack of growth, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's something that you got better at this week? Oh, goodness. Honestly, I think... Anytime I do a presentation, I learn a lot because it's yeah. it, sometimes it's a matter of pulling from something I've already done, like a recent webinar that we did, or I'm learning something new or learning more about the topic that, that I'm trying to share with other people. So uh, right now it's, it's November as we're recording this episode and I'm getting ready for a presentation about recent data privacy changes and how that impacts school marketers, particularly in independent schools for, for this presentation. And so I'm learning more about that and getting into some really granular details sometimes about that topic. So I think I got a little bit, I'm getting a little bit better and more competent with that. And I'm also really trying to get better at relaxing. That's that's a little bit more of a, a muscle that I think I that's need to, to work on. That's not a good thing. Yeah. So we're we're recording this going into a holiday and I'm trying to get myself into into a, into a mentality of relaxation, even just for a little bit, yeah. just a couple of days. Hey, it's worth it. What's one thing that you want to get better at or that you think you'll get better at in the next couple of months that people might be surprised is something you really enjoy and want to get better at? I, I think people might be surprised to know that I really enjoy strength training. And so historically, I've been a runner. A runner is something that I sort of fell in love with from an exercise standpoint. It's the thing I always come back to. Even if I stop doing it for a little bit of time for an injury or something like that, I always come back to running. But I've really been focused in the last few months on strength training because I got this idea in my head that I wanted to be physically stronger. Like I, I can run. I know that that's something I have the capacity to do, but I want to model that for, for my son. And, um, it's just a way for me to feel better. And it's a different kind of output from an energy, an, you know, an energy standpoint. And so, um, one of my goals is to be able to do an unassisted pull-up. I don't know that I'll be able to get there in the next couple of months. It's really hard. And upper body strength is is not usually where it's at for me. That's why I've run so much <laughs> in the past. I'm a lot better, a lot better at that. Um, but the strength training piece is something that I'm I'm continuously trying to work on. Yeah, that's something I think people might be surprised at. But that's I mean, that's that's good. You have that that outlet. 
Yeah. I think when you're used to hearing my voice or only seeing me from the shoulders up, you may not necessarily know that <laughs> that I enjoy doing these really intense, you know, explosive strength training movements in my basement after hours. So a little bit of a surprise <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> well, that's going to be the surprising thing once I, everyone actually starts seeing each other in person is I don't know that I've seen anyone below the shoulders in so long. And yeah. then there's people like, like you, most of our, our team has started remotely. So. Yes. Yeah. I don't know how tall anyone <laughs> is. We've got lots of surprises yeah. coming when, we, when we're back yep. together. Yeah. We're going to show up and find out Angela's 6'5". Oh, what was your view of education and your relationship with education that I experienced growing up? So my parents were both the first people in their families to attend college. And as a result of that, education was very important to them. It was like this core value in my household. So going to college after high school was one of those things that was a given. It wasn't a question. It was just a matter of where you were going to go. And I was actually a really strong, very dedicated student until my mother passed away when I was in middle school. And because it happened so quickly, we all kind of got thrown for a loop and it was harder for me to focus and maintain that same drive and intensity I had when I was younger. But along the way in high school and college, I always had one or two teachers or professors who were really invested in me. And so I learned about the importance of having people in a school environment that really believe in and motivate their students. It's something that really opened my eyes about the really incredible work that happens in schools. It's something I've seen with my son, with his own educational journey so far. And so I've seen firsthand what that can do and the impact that it can have. And children spend so much time at school. That's so important. And that's actually, that's the kind of work that I get really excited about supporting in this role now. What did they do that really stood out and helped advocate for you? I think the biggest thing, honestly, that a teacher can do for a child, regardless of how how old they are, because I, I think this is just as true in kindergarten as it is when you're in 11th grade, when children feel seen and understood, it's extremely powerful. And I think that sometimes in some environments, especially higher education, where you're in these big lecture halls and you know the classes are really, really big sometimes it's easy to feel like a number. And so when you have a teacher or a professor who really sees you and takes the time, you know, after a class to answer a question or checks in on you or spends time in office hours, just really digging into content with you and notices things about you that may have nothing to do with the subject that they teach, that's really, really powerful. I'm a big believer in the need that children have to be seen and understood. I think that's true across the board. I think they need it from their parents. I think they need it from all of the adults in their lives. And so when teachers do that, I, I, the, the teachers that really know their kids um, those are the teachers that stand out. When I get an email from one of my son's teachers and it's clear to me that they really know him, he's not just this faceless second grader, but they really, they know what he's interested in. They know what we did last weekend. You know, they, they have all of these intimate details. It's extremely powerful. And I know that's hard, especially right now because teachers are being asked to do a lot more than teach going through this pandemic. But when you're able to take that time and, and really help a child to know that 
someone who lives outside of their household sees them and understands them. It's just, it's an incredible feeling. And and I'd go even beyond just students, people, colleagues, when they actually notice you and pick up on things. I mean, that, that's a good feeling too. It makes you feel more connected there too. Yeah. People want connection. People want connection. And I think schools play such an important role, just like your work plays an important role, because Mm -hmm. when you're not sleeping and you're not at home, you're doing one of those two things for the most (laughs) part. So when you look at these spaces that you're spending a disproportionate amount of your waking hours, you really want to feel comfortable in those spaces. What did you think you were going to be when you graduated high school? And then what did you think you were going to do at the end of your first year of college? Did that change? So not this. I will say say that. (laughs) I did not anticipate that that I would be doing um, what I'm doing right now. I've always been... I'm glad you did wind up doing it. Same here. Uh, It's interesting. My my entire career has taken a path where I've done a bunch of things that I didn't know existed when I was in school. I had always been very creative and had this natural talent for drawing and painting. And I discovered a little later in high school this passion for photography, which frankly, I have not done a great job nurturing as an adult, but I was really into it at one point in time. And so in high school, I thought I would become a photojournalist. And I, I took photos for the yearbook and I planned to study photography in college. But then I switched to graphic design because I had this debate with my father because he told me that I needed to study something that would guarantee my employment after graduation. So I twisted his arm a little bit and convinced him that graphic design was a real thing. And I I studied that for a bit. The college that I attended, Grand Valley State University, at the time, they had a program in the arts department where you would spend a year building a portfolio. I'm not sure if this is still the case now, but you would build your portfolio and then you had a portfolio review by the faculty in the art department at the end of the year that determined whether or not you could continue on in the program. And I figured out fairly quickly, probably about halfway through my freshman year, that even though I was good at doodling and painting, that was not enough to be a serious (laughs) art student. And so I had to scramble and start to think about, as I was thinking ahead to building my course selection for the next year, how I could use the credits I already had to change majors and still graduate in four years, which was another stipulation that I was given by my dad since he was, I was fortunate to have my dad pay for undergrad. And so someone is paying for college, you do what they tell you to do, right? And so I was told that I had four years to finish. So I switched to advertising and public relations, which is what I stuck with. And I I stayed the course and I'm now one of those rare people who is doing something professionally that's related to what I studied in college. You have this advertising and PR. What did you start out doing? So I thought I was going to work in an agency. I had this fantasy of moving to Chicago for for people who, who aren't aware and are listening. I grew up in Michigan, went to college in West Michigan, and thought that I was going to move to Chicago where there were all of these tall buildings and agencies and all of the things. And then I realized that agency life was a little tougher than I was prepared for. It was very competitive. And this was at a time where the economy was still in a weird place. So 
um, I actually had a hard time finding a job right out of school. And I bartended immediately after. I was not one of those people who walked from the stage with my diploma to a job. It took a few months. And I made a connection with a man who owned a public affairs agency in Grand Rapids, where I was living at the time. He hired me as an intern. That led to a job at a law firm, my first law firm job, my first of a few. I spent five years working in law firms in marketing and business development, uh, both in Grand Rapids and then when I relocated to the Washington, D.C. area. And then There's lawyers in D.C.? Oh, I, I know. It's shocking. <laughs> It's it's shocking, but yes, there are Must few. Must be hard to find a firm there. <laughs> there are few, and I will say the the job search, um, trying to find a job in DC was exponentially easier than trying to find one in in the Grand Rapids area at that time. So, we moved here, my husband and I, and within two weeks, I had a job, and I it it just sort of went from there. I went from working in law firms to working in a digital agency um, to commercial real estate to an IT consulting firm and then ultimately to a school and now continuing to work with schools through niche. So it was it was quite the nonlinear but still marketing adjacent path <laughs> for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the logical path of law firms, IT, <laughs> education. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, but it's made you really well-rounded too. You've had a lot of experiences. You've tasted a little bit of all these pieces. I don't regret it at all because I think it really shaped my perspective, and it it's allowed me to view marketing in a very sort of multi-dimensional way. Mm-hmm. And I also credit the time that I spent working in B2B marketing and and now kind of coming full circle back into B2B marketing. I would not have been able to do my previous job as a director of marketing and communications in a school as well as I did if I hadn't had such varied experience. Because people come into these positions and you read these job descriptions and you're asked to literally do everything in marketing and communications. And even though the skill sets are different, even though there are some things that require a lot of time and maintenance from a a skill development standpoint, people are expected to do it all. And my hope is that one day that won't be the case and marketing departments and schools will be treated similar to the way that they are in businesses where people are allowed to specialize a little bit more. but I, I would not have been able to do that job well without that background. So I'm grateful yeah. for that. Yeah. You know, you get to do, you get to be the marketer, the PR person. You get to do the design work all for half the salary of one person. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, but it's also, it's a good environment too, usually. It's a yes. fun environment. It's something you see the direct impact of what you're doing. What's it like? you know, moving from the podcast guest to a host role. What's that transition been like for you? It's been a good one. I mean, I, I love both, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, I, but I, if I, if I had to 
pick a winner, I would probably give a slight edge to hosting because I yeah. learn something from every single person that I speak to, which is yeah. a lot of fun. Um, and that's personally and professionally. I think the way that we ask our questions allows you to get a little bit of both. And there's so much talent and wisdom in this industry that I just want to soak it all up. And, and hosting mm -hmm. is something that allows me to do that. Yeah, it is. It's a fun experience. It's something that, and then we, I, and I know not everyone does this, but we edit our own episodes as well. Yes. Uh, we don't have a producer or anything. So you get to hear that interview over and over again. <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoy it and I enjoy the the editing piece of it as well. I, I, I think I would have a hard time letting that go and letting someone yeah. else take that on because it's, it's part of the process, but it's also part of the fun. Yeah. What was the hardest transition going from going from one side of the microphone to the other? Editing. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Even though I don't want to let it go now, that was there there is definitely something different about speaking and then just magically seeing the end result when yeah. it pops up, <laughs> you know, in Apple or whatever your your podcast consumption tool of choice happens to be, but the editing piece was definitely a learning curve for mm -hmm. me. I think on the front end, the preparation is similar. You're either preparing the questions or you're creating notes for responding to them. But the the editing piece was was definitely a curveball, but it was a good one. I mean, that's another mm -hmm. it's another new thing that I learned that I'm yeah. pretty excited about. And I've gotten better at it every time we've done an episode. Yeah. And it's something that you can go back and listen and if you're like me, you go back almost two years now and listen to that first episode and you cringe a little bit and wish you <laughs> could go back and re-edit it. <laughs> you can literally hear your own growth. It's great. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what What is your podcast, podcatcher, your podcast app of choice? It would be Apple Podcasts for me. Okay. On phone or on desktop? On the phone, actually. I do it through CarPlay in the car. Okay. Because I found that whenever I try to listen to a podcast in the background while I'm doing something else, I, I, my brain just can't consume both things. I can't, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can do ambient noise in the background. I could, there's like a great focus playlist on Spotify that I'll pull up if I'm writing something or mm -hmm. doing research. But if I try to listen to the podcast at the same time, I want to really dig into what I'm hearing on the podcast. And so, or I want to really dig into the work. So it's hard. I wish that I had the kind of brain that allowed me to do both, but I don't, unfortunately. The dulcet tones of a dog snoring at your feet. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably my other favorite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what would, what would be a, a recommendation? I'm going to ask you for two here. What, what's your favorite work-related podcast, professional development-related podcast? And what's your favorite just fun, <sighs> completely unrelated podcast? I follow so many. I'm going to yep. cheat and look at my library to, to, to make sure that I am happy with my answers because there are so many. How I will many actually, are you subscribed to? Well, I'll throw in a bonus for the parents out there too because yeah. I also have my favorite, uh, well, my son's favorite podcast that we listen to in the car on the way to school, which is Wow in the World. And it yep. is a really great science-based podcast, um, even for people who don't like science. It's very funny. So you can tell that they're also trying to play to the parents a little bit <laughs> in, the, in the podcast episodes. But that's a great one. Um, from a geez, PD standpoint, there are lots of great sort of school 
marketing related podcasts. Um, all of the associations, I think at this point, have some to some degree. So aside from the Enrollment Insights podcast, shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, almost, also, I almost put that in to say, oh, you can't say the one you're on right now. <laughs> oh, no, you got to say the one you are on. School CEO is a good one. Um, I actually, so School PR Happy Hour is a new one that I've gotten into that's very public school specific, but it's it it's helpful for learning a lot of things that are very pure comms related. So very pure sort of public relations, traditional communications, and really tapping into the challenges that people are facing in the public school sector. Um, there's one called the Mastering Social Media for Schools, and their host, Andrea Gribble, who is the owner of an agency that does social media exclusively for schools, is actually going to be a guest of ours very soon. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Um, the Inspired School Marketers podcast, um, you know, Rob and Liza, uh, who run Inspired School Marketers, they're, they're great great people. And they talk to a lot of really fabulous people um, in the independent school space in particular. And then non-school related, you know, How I Built This with Guy Raz is a great one. Um, Work Life with Adam Grant. I'm a huge Adam Grant fan. And his podcast really focuses on like what work and life should look like. And he talks to a very wide range of people about all sorts of things related to sort of the future of work. And that's, that's a really interesting one. And then there's one called experience this that I love because it's short, it's funny, and it's all about customer experience. So those are, those are heavy in the rotation. And then my, my guilty pleasure podcast, I guess, would probably be the bachelor happy hour. And that is because <laughs> I am a, shameless member of Bachelor Nation and have been watching shows in the Bachelor fan franchise for far longer than I care to admit. So that is one that I, when I have time, I'll, I'll give that a listen. That, that's a good one for like when you're cooking or doing something mindless to have on in the background. Yeah. Just something in the background is kind of fun. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How long has that show even been on? Oh, Probably close to 20 years. I mean, wow. it goes way, way back, way back. And it just keeps getting worse, but I can't, I can't seem <laughs> to get away from it. <laughs> okay, moving away from podcasts now. <laughs> How has your perspective on Roland marketing changed since you shifted to niche from Flint Hill? And, and you know, you're working with a single institution, single school and now we're partnering with over 2100. Yes, I mean I I'll start by saying it's changed in the best possible way and in exactly the way that I was hoping for, which is that I have a much better understanding of just how complex and nuanced enrollment marketing is among different types of schools. So coming from the independent school world where the schools are usually really well resourced and have pretty good sized teams I, and finding that that's not the case in pretty much any other segment. And public schools in particular are facing very different challenges right now because so many families are rethinking what they want from their children's education and also how involved they want to be. I think there's a level of parental involvement that 
we're seeing right now that's very different from what we've seen in the past, where before it was just, I'm sending my child to school, I'm trusting the school with, you know, with what they're going to do and what they're going to teach. And now after having the experience of actually having the classroom in their kitchens and dining rooms and, you know, other spaces in their homes for a year, a lot of families are saying, oh, wait, wait a minute. I, I want to be more involved. I want to have more of a voice. And that's a it's a very interesting challenge for schools. The other thing is that the communities are also very different. So in an in independent school, if there's an issue, a parent, the parents will go right to their head of school or their division director or principal or have their side conversations at Starbucks. But you don't have the same level of social media comment takeovers or school board meeting chaos that you see with public schools. It's a lot less confrontational than than it is with public schools. And so I, the, the challenges are just vastly different. The roles are different. You know, in private schools, you typically will find someone that has some sort of focus on marketing or admissions and, and helping families through that process. Whereas with public schools, it's much more decentralized. There's not necessarily an admissions process so much as there is just, you know, a registration process. And the people working in communications are in much more of a traditional communications role where they're focused on community and constituent relations, media relations and outreach, and not so much on marketing to prospective families to make sure that when the time comes to choose a school, they choose their local public school. So it's it's been very interesting to see just how different the areas of focus you know, are among these different segments. The research that we're doing has helped a lot with that conversations with our sales teams, with people that I have come to know just in this role and some of the newer connections that I've made. It's been really, really fascinating. But it also means there's lots of opportunity. I think there are things that different segments can learn from one another. And so helping to connect those dots is an opportunity that I'm pretty excited about. I think when you are going from a school where there's a lot of autonomy, which is not always the case, but it, yeah. I was fortunate in that it was the case for me. And you're making a change because I had been in environments where that was not the case before. You always wonder, you know, will I still have a voice? Will I still be able to contribute? And that's something that I've definitely been able to do at Niche, which I appreciate. What's been your favorite topic to learn about since you've started hosting the podcast here? What, and if you can only just pick one. What's your favorite? So I thought a lot about that one because That's that was really one. hard. It's really yeah. hard. My favorite topic to cover because I, I think I've I've learned something from everyone that I've spoken to so far, mm -hmm. as I mentioned. But my favorite topic to cover so far is a recent episode we just recorded about the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion and communications. And that was with Jan Abernathy from the Browning School. And we unpacked a lot in that episode. It was actually remarkable playing it back while I was going through the editing process and, and hearing just how many twists and turns we took in that conversation. But it's a really great discussion about how people working in communications and admissions can partner with their DEI practitioners at their schools. We talked about crisis communications. It was just a, a really rich discussion. And it's also in an area that I think people can be ill-equipped to handle coming into a role in a school. That's part of why 
you know, I wanted to cover it because I, it, it's hard. It's, it's a really hard topic for a lot of people, regardless of what your background might be. And depending on your background, you might have learned about branding or digital marketing when you were, you know, in, in school. But the way that K-12 and higher ed institutions approach diversity is still very much in flux. It's, it's evolving. And so if you don't grow up in a situation like I did, you know, as a person of color where it's with you every day, you don't, you don't get to not think about it or put it on a shelf. It's, it's constantly there. There can be a lot to learn. But you also don't want to be in a position where you're trying to go through that exercise on the job while you're dealing with a crisis. And so, you know, that is one of many things that we covered in that episode. Um, but it, it was a really great episode to record. And it's one that I think if you are in a new position in a school could be especially helpful because it gives you some very actionable things to look out for and some strategies for aligning with the right people at a leadership level to make sure that you can learn and that you can position yourself from a place of success. Yeah. What are some of the things that, that could help someone be prepared to better handle DEI issues? You know, I mean, that's one aspect now that is certainly front and center, but then you have just crisis communications, you have all sorts of things. How can people be better prepared going into a role for that? So as a start, and this is one of the things that we talk about in, in the episode, it, some of the same steps that you take as a new DEI practitioner, you can take as a communications or admissions professional going into a school. So finding opportunities for PD, especially some of the more sort of entry or 101 level courses to really take a deep dive, if, especially if you're not in a school which I was, where there is formal DEI training and programming for people on leadership. So in my previous role, I was very fortunate that that was a priority. And so we had someone come in and train our leadership team and, and not just the people on the leadership team page of the website, but also mm -hmm. academic leaders. So department chairs and our, our dean of students, you know, people who were in leadership positions in the institution all came together and got the same training. So it was very top down. And we also recognized that it wasn't going to work if it didn't start at the top. But if you're coming in and there's no structure in place at your school for that, there are lots of organizations. I think eCornell was actually one that that Jan mentioned that has courses for free on, mm -hmm. on DEI work. And so start there. You know, um, there are lots of books that you can read. And, and that's also very helpful just to give you the context, but also the language. That's a really big piece of it. I, I think what's what can be challenging with DEI work, regardless of how much time you've spent in the space, is staying on top of the language and making sure that you're using the right language when you're writing about things that come up in school, having a style guide that covers, you know, any any guidelines you have around pronouns and how you refer to students, faculty, you know, are you the school that has pronouns in your email signature? Or are you not the school who has pronouns in your email signature? Yeah. But yeah. having those things documented and having a review process for making sure that you're using the right terms. It's really, if you're truly dedicated to equity work as an institution, those are very small things that can make the difference between lip service and actually walking the walk. Okay. 
here's a, a big one for you. What's yeah. a bold prediction? Think bold here. What's a bold prediction for the biggest stories uh, that will be coming out in PK-12 education for enrollment marketing uh, for 2022? So this is less of a prediction than a hope, <laughs> honestly. <Okay. laughs> uh, this is more of a, of a hope and dream, but it's something that I think it's bold because it's so delayed. And that is that I hope that traditional public schools, so non-charter schools, because they're having a very different experience right now. But my hope is that traditional public schools are going to start thinking more intentionally and strategically about marketing because they have to. You know, the national decline in enrollment for public schools during the pandemic has been pretty well documented. I think the number is at about 1.4 million students at this point. And meanwhile, charter schools are exploding. Private schools are continuing to see consistent enrollment gains for some of the reasons that we've already discussed. And just in the last month, I've seen stories about how enrollment in local schools hasn't rebounded from before the pandemic here in the D.C. area where I am. I just saw an article about how the Austin School District in Texas missed its enrollment target, and so they can't give teachers salary increases because of funding loss. And so there's a lot that's happening, and schools are starting to feel that impact. And I I fully recognize that they're dealing with so much. You know, there are these social emotional challenges that are coming up with students. They're trying to manage parent expectations. They're trying to manage misinformation about things that they're doing with everything from mask wearing to curricular changes. And and it's, it's, it's a lot. So it's really hard to say, I know you have all this going on, but now you have to think about enrollment. (laughs) But you have to think about enrollment because if there are no students, there's no funding. And all of the great work that we talked about earlier in this conversation, that can't happen if you can't compensate your teachers, if you can't pay for programming, if you can't keep your buildings together. And so every single child matters. There, There is a dollar amount assigned to every student. And so My hope is that traditional public schools and districts will start to come around to the idea of intentionally marketing to prospective families and Mm -hmm. helping them to make that choice when the time comes. Because families are realizing that in many cases they have a choice and the obvious choice from before is not necessarily the route that they're taking. So that's my my hope and my, my prediction. Yeah. for 2022 we'll check back in december 2022 and see if it came through <laughs> i guess <laughs> fingers crossed yeah one last one here one fun one i'm going to throw at you if someone just wants to strike up a conversation what's a fun conversation starter icebreaker that, something you like talking about what's something that would be fun for you for me personally yeah bourbon <laughs> <laughs> talking about or <laughs> I would say what's your favorite or your favorite yeah. cocktail mm-hmm. which is it's such an interesting contrast with the health related discussion that we had earlier <laughs> I promise there's no bourbon involved in my weightlifting yeah <laughs> but yeah it's it's one of those things that I discovered I liked probably about 10 years or so ago by accident Mm -hmm. And it's actually a funny story. 
I, so I, I will tell this story. I, I was, was going to say, we have to hear. You can't just say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll tell the story. I hate when people say it's kind of a funny story and then they don't give you any no. Oh, that's a really funny story. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll throw you guys a bone here. But okay. I was at a happy hour for an agency that I worked for. And it was an agency that specialized in these really complex um, content management system implementations. And so I was one of few women there in attendance. Mm-hmm. And at this moment in time, I was the only one standing up at the bar. I was surrounded by all of these developers and some of our C-suite executives. And the CEO ordered a Blanton's Neat, which to this day is my favorite bourbon. It's almost mm-hmm. impossible to find. And there's a soapbox about all of that that I I, I could go on for another another episode, maybe <laughs> coming soon, or <laughs> bourbon episode in 2022. Um, but I I wanted to be cool, uh, mm-hmm. which is not something that I would do now. So this was much younger version of Angela, and every everyone is ordering bourbon. So I said, you know what, I'll have the same thing, and I loved it. And that's it's a pretty big deal to go from no bourbon to bourbon and to think it's great right out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, that's that was I think. I'm still surprised that that worked out the way that it did. But then I decided, okay, I'm going to look into this more. And I started studying different types of bourbons and going to bourbon tastings. This was all, of course, before I had a child and other obligations. But um, it it just became a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. So now I have a pretty well-stocked bar and you know, I've start, I've studied tasting notes and, and all kinds of different crazy things. I belong to a bourbon group on Facebook, and it's mm-hmm. you know, like ten women and thousands of men. So women, <laughs> start drinking bourbon. We need more of you, please. But yeah, I I it's one of those things that in red wine I could talk about for for quite a while. Yeah. So, so anyone yes. that's wanted to strike up a conversation has just been intimidated and knows how to now. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I hope I'm not intimidating, but if I am, throw some bourbon questions at me. I'd love to answer them. I hope everyone enjoyed this little uh, insight and getting to meet Angela and and get to know more about her and hoping that everyone has a great end to 2021 and starts 2022 off strong because just like we said last year, 2022 is going to be a great year. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Will, and Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you.